as we look at 1 Corinthians this morning, that's the only announcement I've got, um, and we are going to be looking at the gospel tradition, and that's the title of today, particularly rooted in resurrection, um, <clears throat> the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Uh, we're going to be looking at the longest single argument that Paul makes in Scripture. Uh, Paul has a lot to say about a lot of things, but this is the longest single argument, and it is a, a beautiful and important theme that he picks up on. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning, uh, but the whole passage of chapter 15, uh, you can look and see that it is a whole lot of verses. It goes all the way up to verse 58. So there's 58 verses in this chapter, um, and Paul is addressing, namely, the question that is seen in verse 12. Uh, and, and you can see now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, uh, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So there were people in the Corinthian church uh, that said that there was no resurrection from the dead. Uh, and there are several themes that run through this argument of Paul. The, what we're going to look at is the base and the foundation of his argument. But he looks at the, the importance of the resurrection in verses 14 through 17. If Christ isn't raised from the grave, then our preaching is in vain. If Christ isn't raised from the grave, then we are misrepresenting Christ. If Christ isn't resurrected from the grave, then our faith is futile. And Christians, above all people, are to be pitied. Uh, the resurrection not only has importance, but it has implications for the believer. Uh, it, it, Christians will rise with Christ. He's the first fruits uh, that the enemy uh, enemies of God, the last enemy, which is death, has been defeated, uh, and that those who will, will be raised with him will live forever and inherit the kingdom of Christ. So the argument includes the importance of the resurrection, the implications of the resurrection, and the, and the power of the resurrection as it moves us, removes the sting and the victory of death, offering to us power in every work we offer to the Lord. So it's a hugely important doctrine uh, that Jesus Christ did die and he did rise from the grave. It has tremendous implications for our present. I don't know if I were to ask uh, you all who are men who inspire you. I don't know what you'd say. Uh, maybe an athlete inspires you. You can look at me and say pretty clearly uh, that I'm not inspired by athletes, right? You can look at my physique and my body. In fact, uh, my wife, about four, five, eight years ago, the first time Michael Phelps won like 30 gold medals, you know who Michael Phelps is? She made some comment about a swimmer's body. And so I turned that into a joke. I was like, you want me to have a Michael Phelps body? Fine. So I cut this picture of Michael Phelps out in a Speedo, about you know, a foot high. And I, I, I put it on our fridge, and I strove to have that body. And I worked hard, and I sweated. And after about two days, I was like, this is for the birds, man. You know, I'm not inspired by athletes. If I was going to do an Olympic sport, it would probably just be the luge because you just sit in a sled and scream, right? That, that's something I could do. Uh, but here's what I am inspired by. What I am inspired by are men who reach into the darkness and bring light. I'm inspired by men with such faith that they reach into the uttermost broken parts of their hearts, the uttermost broken parts of their families, the uttermost broken parts of their city, of the world, and they bring the light and the hope of Jesus Christ. Men like Gary Haugen, who founded the International Justice Mission. I'm inspired by men like that. I'm inspired by David Livingston and men who, who go to the frontiers of pioneer mission work 
and reach unreached people. I'm inspired by men like Mbumi Makuku, who's a pastor in a, in, a, in a slum and a friend of mine. And the slum is what Newsweek calls the worst place on earth. I'm inspired by men of faith who reach into darkness and who live the light of the gospel. Many of you are in this room that inspire me and are doing that in this city. One who's not in this room, whose name I'll just say, is is young John Laughlin. And he is a dear friend of mine. And if you know John, he's just like you and he's just like me. But his heart brings light into darkness. Folks, the practical implication of what we're going to talk about today is, is resurrection. It's bringing life where death is. It's bringing light where darkness is. It's the future of God's plan invading the present reality. And that's power. And that's what we're going to look at today. And it fires me up. So if I get a little crazy up here, then you can dismiss yourself if it bothers you. All right, All right let's look at these verses. Uh, uh, the first, I guess, underlines that you have there. <clears throat> the, the main argument we see in 1 Corinthians 15 is that what God has done through Christ is both the model and the means of what he will do for all of Jesus' people who belong to him by faith. So let's look at these verses, and let's unpack what Paul is saying. The ground for Paul's argument for the resurrection. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless... You believed in vain, for I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then he appeared to uh, all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecute the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. As we unpack in this passage, we're going to see four main points uh, that Paul is making. The first of which is that uh, the gospel has been made known. The gospel has been made known. Paul uses this word, gospel. It, it, it's a Greek word, kerygma. It means proclamation of a king. It means an announcement of good news. And Paul is saying plainly uh, that the gospel has been preached, it has been proclaimed, and it has been received. Now, you may remember uh, that Paul has been talking about worship. He has been talking about the order of worship. And you particularly may remember last week, Sandy's interpretation of tongues. And by that, I don't mean uh, his interpretation of someone speaking in tongues, but his, his rep- representation, I guess, of tongues. If you didn't hear that, you need to go online because it's well worth it. It was quite entertaining. But So he has been talking about orderly worship. And he goes to answer another question about Christ but, I mean, that the church has, but he goes back to the beginning, where he started in the book of Corinthians. The gospel that he had proclaimed, 
to the Corinthians, and, and you'll remember this, it was the gospel that was foolishness to the Greeks. It was a stumbling block to the Jews. It's, it's the gospel uh, that is what he called the wisdom of God in chapter 1. In chapter 2, it was, it was the gospel that, that he proclaimed uh, Christ crucified, that he said it was all that he knew. It was, it was the work of God through Jesus Christ. He proclaimed it, and they received it, he says. It's the gospel that he proclaimed in chapter 3, verse 6, when, when he says that he planted in the soil before Apollos watered. So he's going back to where he started in the proclamation of the work of Christ. Um, he, uh, you know, we can read, uh, no need to, to redo uh, his time in Corinth, looking at Acts 18, verses 1 through 18, or even to revisit Acts 20, uh, 24, but I do want to point to um, the centeredness uh, of Paul's definition of his gospel found in, in Romans 1, 1 through 4. And I'm just going to read that to you. Uh, all my markings fell out of my Bible. I'm going to look up several verses today. And it may take me a second, and you'll be okay with that. Romans 1, 1 through 4, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the kerygma of God, the proclamation of the kingdom, the good news of the king, which was promised beforehand in the prophets of the Holy Spirit concerning his son, who was descended by David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in, the power, uh, in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So when Paul talks about the gospel, we're going to unpack central themes of his message that he's referred to already in 1 Corinthians and that is characteristic uh, to all the churches that he wrote to. But not only has the gospel been proclaimed uh, and received, uh, but it's also the gospel is our foundation, and it is our salvation. All right, He says, but it's, the, it's which you received and which you now stand. The work of Christ that's in the gospel is your foundation. It's what you stand on. It's what you build your faith on. It is the rock uh, that does not get swayed or moved or broken when storms of life come, is it is a sure and reliable foundation that you build on. It's that on which we stand, and it's that which is our salvation. What Paul says here that is being saved, uh, he is not saying uh, that salvation is something we have to continue to achieve. Salvation is a one-time act but it has ongoing implications. Andrew Murray wrote a a book one time. If you haven't read it, I want to encourage it. It's called Salvation Accomplished and Salvation Applied. Salvation Accomplished and Applied. And it is uh, is a short little book that's worth reading that talking about not only the accomplished work of Christ that saves his people, but the application of that work of Christ that would speak to the ongoing application of salvation, which Paul is talking about here, which you are being saved. And folks, let me tell you this. The reality of the resurrection is something that we need to be striving for and working for as we build our lives on the foundation of the work of Christ. Memphis needs men who are obsessed (laughs) with applying the work of Christ, with applying the resurrection. This city is in desperate need of the church to live the future reality of the victory of God in the here and now. So the first thing we see is the gospel has been made known. It's been proclaimed and received. It's the foundation in our salvation. 
Uh, and the second thing we see is the gospel basics are priority, and resurrection is central. And this is what we see in verses 3 through 4. For I delivered to you uh, as first importance uh, what I also received. Now, we already went over the idea of Paul receiving the gospel uh, when it came to uh, the traditions uh, that came from Christ. We already covered that in both 1 Corinthians 11.3 and 1 Corinthians 11.23. But suffice it to say that that Paul received his gospel straight from Christ and passed it on to the disciples. Uh, But the gospel basics are the priority, and resurrection is central. Uh, the, The way we see that is the gospel plan is centered on the work of Christ. Now here's what Memphis doesn't need more of. Memphis doesn't need more men who center their salvation, who center the good news of the kingdom of God on their own work. We don't need more men whose foundation for your faith is how many Bible studies you go to. We don't need more men whose foundation for your faith is how many good things you do. We don't need more moralistic men that feed the matrix that typically measures the significance of men of faith in the South. And in Memphis, it's a bit on steroids. Memphis needs men more and more whose faith, whose power, whose gospel that they believe is not centered on your work at all, but is centered completely on the work of Jesus Christ. Because that's what Paul does here. I delivered it to you as first importance. And he gives us a, a summary of what the gospel is, that Christ died that Christ was buried, that Christ rose from the grave. The gospel is not that you go to church. The gospel is not that you do good things. The gospel is not that you know the right people. The gospel is 100% completely that Jesus Christ died. He literally died. That Jesus Christ was buried. He went into the tomb. He was dead. And that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. He conquered death. And that he defeated the greatest enemy. That death lost its sting and that pe- its sting and its sting. And that people who have faith in him are going to rise with him. There's power in that gospel. Much more power than you can give in the proclamation of the gospel. The plan is centered on the work of Christ, not your work. I love what Paul says in Titus 3, 4 through 7, that when the goodness and kindness of God appear, uh, that we were saved, not by our works done in righteousness. (laughs) Oh, thanks be to God. Folks, you need to evaluate yourself. Does the gospel for you center on your work, or does it center on Christ's work? The gospel not only is centered on the work of Christ, but the gospel plan is ancient in origin. I'm going to look at these verses again, and and you'll see I I added some out on purpose. Uh, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. Now, this is something uh, that, that was a plan A for God, that God was going to make atonement for sin, that he was going to choose for himself a people 
This, this could be seen in, in Isaiah uh, 53. In the resurrection, particularly testified in Isaiah 53, 5-6. This could be seen that, that God himself was going to come and that he was going to uh, take our sin and remove the scarlet color and make us his people white as snow. And that he was going to give us new hearts, Ezekiel 36. And that through the new hearts and the new spirit, there would be a resurrection, a new life brought from death. Ezekiel 37. Uh, the, the, the plan of God is ancient in origin, and it's centered completely on the work of God. And I find this amazingly humble, and I want to tell you a story that illustrates, uh, in my heart, the gravity with which it would be for a God who loves to sacrifice the way he did. I, I was at a farm about three and a half years ago. It was a Saturday morning, and it was uh, down in uh, Mississippi. And there was a few families down there. And it had been raining all week. And there were aspects of this farm uh, where there were hills. And there, there had been uh, pools that had formed. And it, it was autumn. Uh, it was fall, uh, October maybe. Uh, and, and so there were not only, uh, there were not only uh, little pools that had formed, there was a lot of leaves that were in these pools. And so it was actually, some of them were hard to tell because they had leaves on top of them. So it looked like just kind of a, a rolling hill with a pile of leaves in the middle, but it was actually two feet of water. You just couldn't tell. So knowing that, I've got four kids, and, and I knew um, that I, we had to watch our kids carefully. And we were hanging out as families, and my youngest son, Ben, uh, this was a couple of years ago, so he was about three or four. And he went, um, and he was on one of these little hills, and it was just about from me, you know, to, to outside those doors, maybe the parking lot from here. Uh, so not real far, I saw him clearly, and I look over, and I see, you know, him standing on this hill, goofing around. I talk to a friend, and I turn back, and I look, and he was gone. And immediately, if you're a father in here, you know the worst things start running through your head. I've had uh, members of churches that I've been with who have lost kids to drowning, uh, lost kids in general. It's just a tragic thing, and immediately my mind went to the worst case scenario. I ran to the hill where I seen my son, and I ran up to the edge of the hill, and I looked down, and I'm never going to forget this image. My son was in the water, underwater, leaves were all behind him, he was laying on these leaves, and his eyes were open, it looked like Han Solo in Return of the Jedi, and he was just looking up, and he looked dead, and my heart just stopped. In those, like, two seconds, where I had to move from the top of that hill down in the water to grab my son and pull him out. And I pull him out, and he, he hadn't breathed. He just went, <gasps> like this. Like, oh, my goodness. I pull him out, and I'm just holding him. So grateful that I didn't lose my son. So grateful that I looked down, and I was able to rescue my son, not being able to imagine life without him. His name's Benjamin, son of, son of my right hand. I couldn't do it. I, I have that story, and I realize I have no capacity to give my son up. But somehow, in God's divine love, it was his plan A to not only look down and see his son dying, but to plan it, to send him down. Why? To pay for your sins. This is an ancient plan to give you victory, to give you hope. That God so loved the world, he so loved you that he gave his son. And when we try to add our 
uh, moralistic efforts in our performance to our salvation, we are minimizing his great love and his great work for us. There is power in his love and his plan that is ancient in origin. And you can look at Psalm 16, 8 through 11. You can look at Acts 4, 4 33, 17 and uh, uh, 32. Uh, and you'll see God's plan from the beginning was to purchase for himself a people and to reach into the death that is the decay of our lives from sin. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we've been made alive together with Christ and to bring life. And the Jews who studied the scriptures, they expected this resurrection. They expected life to come from death. And this is what's so amazing. If you look back on John 11, verse 26, then you remember the story of Lazarus dying. And I'm going to read you these verses but when Lazarus died, Jesus went to see Mary and Martha, and he was dead. He had been in the tomb several years. And this is what Jesus says to him, beginning of verse 20. He says, So Martha heard that Jesus was coming, and she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, Oh, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? <laughs> and what Jesus accomplishes in the resurrection, in the climax of this ancient plan of redemption, is that he took what Jews understood to be the end of history and he embodied it and he brought history to the here and the now so that he could call to Lazarus in the power of God and demonstrate that he is Lord over everything, even death. And yes, Lazarus lived to die again, but Jesus died and rose so that when we all die, we will never die again. And he brought the future to the here and now and embodied it in a person. Oh, it's ancient in origin. And even not only the atonement of his sacrifice, but the rising from the grave was done outside of him. We already read in Romans 1 how the Spirit raised him from the dead. You can see it again in Romans 8. Uh, but this idea of being raised, it's a passive perfect. We see it here in verse 4. Uh, that means the, the action of the verb was done to him. From the outside, it was part of a greater plan. But not only that, it was perfect. So it's a, it's a permanent reality. It's a permanent state. It's ongoing. And he uses this, 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 this grammar, and not only here in verse 4, but he uses it in 12. He uses it in 13. He uses it in 14. He uses it in 15, 16, 17, and 20, as if to say, get the picture. This is part of a greater story that you've been invited into. And in the same way that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we talked about in 1 Corinthians 11, and we bring the past work of Christ to the present, the resurrection takes the future victory of Christ and brings it here to the present. And we as men are called to embody that. <laughs> awesome. It gets so much better. You ready? Are you ready to go on? Yes, Mitchell, I'm ready. Okay. Okay, let me say this before we move on. We're, the next point is point three, but let me say this. 
the idea of immortality in the Roman world where Corinth was, uh, was something that was accessed through the emperor cults. The idea of resurrection from a Roman worldview, we mentioned the Jewish worldview, from a Roman worldview was, ah, was, not, real, uh, was not real popular. The way they accessed uh, immortality is they went and they made sacrifices. And there's temples uh, in Corinth that, that I have written down that I'm not going to mention for the sake of time. But they would make a sacrifice so that they could lay to the emperor cult so that they could later access immortality. And that was designed to unite the empire through, through uh, emperor cult worship, uh, but also uh, to provide access to immortality. The gospel is quite different, isn't it? The gospel is that a sacrifice was made for you so that you can access immortality. And I just think that's beautiful and awesome, and I want to say that. I also want to say this, that later in the passage, um, there's all kinds of arguments for the reality of the resurrection. uh, And and those need to be addressed, and I'm confident they will be addressed. I I was going to spend a lot of time unpacking uh, different aspects of the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, arguments against the resurrection. Uh, but I, I know that that's going to happen in later weeks, and so I'm going to rely on Todd and Sandy and others uh, to unpack those. I do want to refer you to N.T. Wright's book, uh, The Resurrection of the Son of God. Now, last time I talked, I talked about uh, N.T. Wright's uh, theology on Paul, and I use it as an example of a graphic fallacy. Uh, but it, when I did use him as a negative example of interpretation, I mentioned that his work, that he has a lot of work that's unbelievable and we should access. This is part of that. It is the resurrection of the Son of God, and no one has written a theological book that really closes the book on any subject. No one's done it before. N.T. Wright comes darn close in this when he talks about the resurrection. So I want to encourage you to read that, and you really can't today talk about resurrection in the church without mentioning uh, the work that N.T. Wright has done. Um, so that's, that's neither here nor there. We need to go on and see what Paul wrote. All right, so the first thing we see in this reality is that the that, The gospel has been made known. Uh, And the second thing we see is that the gospel basics are priority. You've got to understand the basics. Uh, And and the second is that resurrection is central to the basics. And the third thing we see is the ancient plan of the gospel has present prominence because of the power of the resurrection. The ancient plan of the gospel has present prominence because of the power of the resurrection. Look at this with me in verses 5 through 8. He appeared, talking about the risen Christ, to Cephas, who is Peter, and then to the twelve. And he appeared uh, to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom uh, are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as the one untimely born, uh, he appeared to me. What Paul has done uh, he, he's already given historical witnesses in referring to the Scriptures that testified to the risen Jesus. And now he gives living witnesses. And you notice this, this reality in all these verses, four times it's mentioned, that, that Christ appeared. And again, I want you to note that this is God's initiative and God's work. Christ appears to us as a risen Jesus. Christ appears to us as the conqueror of the grave. This is not something that you grope for. This is not something that you try to manufacture or make happen. This is a reality that comes to you by God's grace and God's initiative. He appears. He makes himself known. He has conquered death. He walks into the room with closed doors and he eats fish with you and he gives you peace. The resurrected Jesus finds you. And we have men 
in the church in many ways who are confronted with the resurrected Jesus regularly. And rather than throw themselves wildly into the work of Christ, we settle for nice, neat, controllable aspects of religion. Ah, I'm not going to pay attention to the work of Christ that's been revealed to me. But what we see is that that it was witnessed by many, the names, Peter, the names, James, the names, the 12, 500 probably came from the the time uh, when Jesus was speaking at the end of Matthew in 28, giving the Great Commission. Uh, And then lastly to Paul, the resurrection was witnessed by many. And again, I will refer to you to N.T. Wright's work, and Tim Keller's written some great stuff. If you have the book, The Reason for God, chapter 13, Keller leans completely on this book. (laughs) But he's got some great arguments uh, in that, and this is not the place for it. Uh, You're going to hit that in later weeks, but I want to point you to it. And I actually took a quote from Keller's book as he quoted N.T. Wright here at the end. We'll read in a minute. But the resurrection was witnessed by many, but also the resurrection reorders our present priorities. Now, here's the reality. We hear news, and news that we hear changes our present priorities, all right? So I have a cell phone. Anybody here have a cell phone? Yeah, most people do. I was driving down the road one day, and I, and I, I can use this illustration with a group of guys, okay? And the news story came on that, that carrying your cell phone in your pocket here can lead to testicular cancer. I was like, whoa, whoa. Hold on. You know, you hear news, you begin to count the costs, right? Is it really worth it to carry my phone down here? You know, I, 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 uh, I've got four kids, like I said, and my factory's closed, all right? But my playground's still open. And I begin to, to, to weigh the cost of carrying my phone in my pocket as I'm listening to this story. And by the end of the story, the news, it changed my priority, right? So I moved my phone from my pants pocket to my shirt pocket. And I felt better about myself. But then I realized I've got a different muscle right here called my heart, right? So then I, then I began, as I'm driving down the road, to, to weigh the, the options. Which muscle do I value more? And basically what I decided is that I'd rather die than live without it. You know what I'm saying? So I carried my phone in my shirt pocket for a while. (laughs) And then I realized, you know what, I've got back pockets too. (laughs) So I'm just going to carry it back here, and if I've got to get a cheek removed, then maybe I'll look a little more like Michael Phelps, okay? Because I can can stand to lose some junk in my trunk, you know what I'm saying? Okay. Here's the point. The point is that when we hear news, it changes our priorities. Look at the list that, that Paul has. Peter, you remember Peter? Jesus had died and raised from the grave, uh, had died and been put in the grave. What did Peter do? Peter went back to his old ways. Peter went back to fishing. And what happened when he encountered the risen Jesus? This intimate conversation where the risen Jesus gave him, restored him again and again and gave him the keys of the kingdom. Ha ha! repentance, restoration, renewal. And the priorities of Peter moved him from being a fisherman, again, to going to Acts. And you see him giving the first sermon at Pentecost. The news of the resurrection changes people. Look at James. It's not hard to see that James in John 7, 5 didn't even believe that Jesus was the Messiah. 
He didn't believe it. But when he encountered the resurrected Jesus, what happened to him? He became a pillar of the church. His whole life was transformed. When you hear the news that Jesus is risen from the grave, it changes you completely. And the last example here is Paul. And it says about Paul that he is, he is, uh, um, he appeared to James and then all the apostles. And last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. Now look, part of Paul's argument here is to say, look, there's people still alive. If you have trouble believing the resurrection, go talk to them. There's plenty of witnesses who saw the risen Jesus. And that's hugely important. And what is noticeable here is that he doesn't mention the women, which is very interesting to me. But he doesn't, and I'm not going to venture into speculation. I'm going to talk about what he talked about. The last person he mentions is himself. And what does he call himself? As one untimely born. The Greek word for that literally is abortion or a miscarriage, right? So the idea is that Paul was ripped from the womb prematurely. Uh, Scholars speculate as to what that means. Some people (laughs) say, you know, Paul talks about himself as an ugly person, and so maybe uh, he, he was ripped from the womb, and so he looked like a premature baby, and that's why it was ugly, and you combine that with the hard life of his apostleship, apostleship and he just looked like a, a, a very ugly person, uh, like some people in this room. Uh, I'm not going not gonna to say any names, but you know who you are. <laughs> the people who aren't laughing are like, is he talking about me? I'm just kidding. All right. And then the scholars will go on and say, well, maybe this is, this is what he's talking about. And in 2 Corinthians 12, when he talks about the thorn in his flesh being ugly, Uh, I don't think that's what he's talking about. And I I would agree with other scholars that say that this idea that that Paul was uh, untimely born doesn't mean he's some half-baked preemie that that reflects more of a far side cartoon than humanity. Uh, I think what it means is uh, that the, the power of the resurrection, yes, he was ripped from the womb on the road to Damascus when his name was Saul, And he saw the light, as babies do when they're born, and he was blinded by that. But he he didn't have the advantage of gestation that other disciples, apostles had. He didn't follow Jesus around in the case of Peter. He he, he didn't grow up with Jesus in in the case of of James, okay? He, He didn't have that gestation period. He was ripped from the womb. And when he encountered the resurrection Jesus, everything changed in his life. Because when you hear the news of the resurrection, your present priorities are put on hold. Because the future has broken into the present in the person of Jesus Christ, and everything changes. His priorities become your priorities, and there's no greater picture of this than what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. And I'm going to read this to you real quick. Uh, it's It's in your next section to read, but I'm going to read it now because I think it fits uh, what we've been talking about. Though I myself, Paul gives a little brief testimony in chapter 3 of Philippians verse 4, have reason to have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day by the people of Israel, a tribe of Benjamin. He was very pious. He was very pious. Paul was a very religious man. Not only that, not only was he pious, he was patriotic. Look what it says next. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, 
He was a Pharisee as to the zeal of persecutor of the church. Not only was he pious, not only was he patriotic, but he was passionate about his faith. And he had amazing pedigree. The description of Paul, by the way, before he encountered Christ on the road when he was Saul, is really a description of a good Memphis kid that you want your daughter to date. Does he come from a good family? Does he take his religion seriously? Does he love our country? That's Paul. Just a good, moralistic guy. Okay, sure, he killed people who were Christians. But that was just being passionate and zealous for his faith, right? Seen as a good thing for his role. But what happened to Paul? Whatever gain I had, I counted to the loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of surpassing grace, the worth of knowing Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish, dung in him, uh, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but one that comes, that one comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ and the righteousness from God that depends on faith completely on Christ's work and not your own. And look what he says here in verse 10. That I may know the power of the resurrection. <laughs> because when, Paul, when Saul encountered the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, not only did his name change and his direction change, but all his priorities and his purposes changed. Let me ask you this. Has the encounter with the risen Jesus changed your priorities? What do you do with your time? Has it changed your priorities? What you do with your money? Has it changed your priority? How you use your influence? Has it changed your priorities and what goals you set for your family and yourself? Has it? Because when you encounter the risen Jesus, it changes everything. And the world sees a church that's full of men who remain unchanged. And let me tell you something. When change begins to happen in men, when death is defeated visually and life comes out when darkness is encountered and light comes out when the lost are found, then the religious get upset. Those aren't my words. Those are Jesus' words. Look at Luke 15. I just was floored when I saw this. Luke 15, you're all familiar with the story of the prodigal son. I've read it again and again and again but I've never read it through the lens of the resurrection and the lens of this study. Uh, just a few verses, 22 through 24. But the father said to his servants after his son had returned, you know the story, I'm not going to say it, bring quickly my best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his head and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and let us celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive Again, you hear that? My son was dead and is alive again. How did the older brother respond? He hated it. He hated it. Because he had been living a controlled, moralistic life, a dutiful life to earn his place and his favor in the family. But when the power of a resurrection grips men, then all of a sudden the church is having these parties and celebrating in ways that everybody's going, whoa, 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 whoa. I've been a member of this church for years. No one celebrated my family like this. 
No one has celebrated my family like this person that's come out of recovery, like this person that's come to Christ, like this person that's honestly dealing with their sexuality, like this person who, who moved into the worst neighborhood and is bringing light to bear, like this person who's using their finances and their means is a vehicle to bring restoration and renewal, like this person who was determined to bring quality education to every citizen of Memphis as we are to pay for the quality education our own kids have. That's light. That brings disruption. That brings celebration. That's what the resurrection brings. It reaches into darkness and brings life. It reaches into death and brings light. Folks, I'm telling you, the resurrection reorders our present priorities, and Paul wants you to see it. And the last thing the gospel shows us is our great need and God's great provision. Our great need and God's great provision. Resurrection doesn't leave people the same. Resurrection doesn't leave places the same. Because it's, it's the work of God in us and through us. The first thing we see is that the gospel highlights the grace of God. Look at verse 9 with me. Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Here Paul calls himself the least of the apostles. In Ephesians 3.8, Paul calls himself the, the least of the saints. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. You see what happens here. Someone who boasted in their pedigree, someone who boasted in their piety, someone who boasted in the piousness and their purity, or their faith, is one who encounters the risen Jesus and he lives openly and honestly. The gospel highlights the grace of God because it's God's work from beginning to end. We see this repeated again and again in this section. But by the grace of God, in verse 10, I am what I am. Verse 10, and his grace towards me is not in vain. Uh, verse uh, 10, but the grace of God that is within me. Folks, men, you see, the gospel, if it really is God's work from beginning to end, it frees us to live with nothing to hide and nothing to lose, and nothing to prove. It frees us to be honest with ourselves, honest with our brokenness, honest with our need, honest in our desire for grace, our hunger and thirst for righteousness. It leaves us as a church to be the people in this culture who are secure enough not to use the power of God for our own purposes, to try to establish a, a theocracy, but to realize that Jesus is Lord over everything. And that means that we are the servants of all, doesn't it? The people who, uh, men who live resurrected lives are men who understand that this city is God's city and that your city, your family is God's family and that your life is God's life for he is Lord, Lord over everything, even death. And because of his grace, we're free to be honest with places where he isn't Lord. We're free to be honest with places where Christians have mismanaged and misstewarded what God has given them. And we can repent of that and turn to that. If the Apostle Paul can be secure enough to call himself the least of the apostles, if the Apostle Paul can, can be secure enough to call himself the chief of sinners, then surely you can be secure enough in the grace of God to acknowledge when you're broken, when you're weak, and when you're in need of grace. You see, when you highlight your work, when you highlight your effort, when you highlight your performance, you take 
away God's glory. Even last night, my wife reminded me of this. We were having a conversation. I was uh, going back and forth with her about uh, an illustration that I used somewhere, and, and she stopped me because I, I run things by her. She's, she's an amazing woman of faith. And she stopped me. She says, Mitchell, I don't think you realize how moralistic that sounds. She says, your illustration, it highlights your effort and not God's and your work. And I was like, shut up. (laughs) Just kidding. I was like that in here, but it never came out my mouth, so it's okay. Right? And I asked her, well, help me see what you mean, because honestly, I didn't see it at all. And we talked for about 15 minutes, and she said, she said, honey, she, she, this is what she says to me. She says, you know, uh, this idea of what was her language, of having a works-based righteousness. She basically said you can fill in that blank with other things. It doesn't have to be a works-based salvation. She says your struggle is a works-based sanctification. Your struggle is a works-based significance, a works-based security. She says when you do that, you're minimizing the work of God. And I was just like, Holy Spirit, stop speaking through my wife. (laughs) But the power of the resurrection frees us to acknowledge we bring nothing to the table except need. And that God's grace is what's central. It highlights the grace of God, and then next it, the gospel dignifies the destitute, and it motivates the man of God. And this is is really what Paul says uh, when when he's saying, the grace of God, I am whatever I am, and uh, his grace towards me is not in vain. What First he said, when he talks about being the persecutor of the church, I mean, just, just come on. Can you get to the bottom of the barrel of your conviction? I mean, look, with a, with a room this full of men, I know that there are bad records. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I know that you've done things that you're ashamed of. I know that you've made decisions that you regret. I know that you've got things in your life that you've done that you would never share with anybody because you're so ashamed of them. And what Paul is, Paul is not proud of the fact that he was a persecutor of the church and killed people. But he's using it as a vehicle to show you that he dignifies the destitute. Those who take advantage of the gospel and are honest with their need will find dignity, will find God's love and forgiveness in the midst of your own darkness. And it will motivate the man of God and this is what Paul says. He, he, he finds dignity in his destitution. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace towards me is not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any other apostles, though it was not I. His motivation comes not to earn God's affection and love, but because he has God's affection and love through the power of the gospel, from that he's a motivated man. You see the difference? The difference is looking at a picture of Michael Phelps and saying, I can do that to my body and trying hard and going, forget it, this sucks. And saying, you know what? My wife loves me and so I want to be healthy so that I can be around for her and the kids. It looks very different. On the one hand, I'm going to have a chiseled body like Michael Phelps. I'll never have that. And I can spend my life trying to get it. On the other hand, I can stay fat enough where other women don't want me and fit enough where my wife does. You know what I mean? But that comes from a place of love from my wife. And the church needs a revival of manhood 
where we're responding to God's love and we're responding to God's work and we're motivated to go into the darkest places of this city, the darkest places of this world, the darkest places of our hearts and go out in faith and say, if God can bring life from death in here, then surely he can bring life from death here. And I'm going to be a vehicle to bring what is a future reality to the here and now. And I'm going to radically understand his lordship, that he's lord of Memphis, that he's, this is his city, that my family, his family, my church is his church, my life is his life. So whatever, whatever he gives me to steward, then I'm going to use it and step out in faith to advance this reality of bringing the future to the here and now. <laughs> That's a motivated man who's responding to the grace of God. And finally, the gospel is accessed by faith alone. And we see this in the last verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. The power of God is not accessed by your networking, by your performance, by what you do or who you know. The power of God is accessed by faith and faith alone. Because the gospel is this. Christ lived, Christ died, Christ rose again. Christ lived, Christ died, Christ rose again. The question is, will we be men who are motivated by this love and this reality and who take this light and this love and the salt into the darkness of our hearts and our city so that our churches truly begin to celebrate? and that we live what will be in the here and now. We pray it every week, don't we? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's resurrection, resurrection life. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the power of the gospel, the message of the resurrection, that this world matters. We thank you uh, that all that we do in light of your victory It can be a worshipful proclamation of your work. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be men who are radically transformed by your love and by your grace, and that we would allow an encounter with the risen Jesus to change our priorities, and that you would help us to be men who faithfully steward your lordship, your victory over all of life in the here and now. We thank you that Death has lost, and love has won. We thank you for allowing us to access this reality, not by our own sacrifices, and not having to wait until the last day, but we can access it now, through you and your work. Holy Spirit, revive us, as you did in Ezekiel. Revive these dead bones. Bring life and get glory at all costs. We pray in Jesus' name. All God's men said, amen. Amen.